I get a call at three in the morning, very cryptic. Lynn, yeah, get over here. It's going down. Click. I had no, no idea. Not even my wildest imagination or intuition informed me at any level that this would be one of the most bizarre days of my life. You're listening to The Media Narrative, a show where you'll get the stories behind the stories. You'll meet journalists who talk about the challenges of reporting and uncovering the truth. This week, the first of a two-part conversation with veteran journalist and educator Lynn Washington. In this episode, we'll be talking mostly about the day the city of Philadelphia dropped a bomb at 6221 Osage Avenue in West Philly, May 13th, 1985, the MOVE bombing. Just over 35 years ago, Lynn Washington spent nearly 24 hours on that scene reporting for the Philadelphia Daily News. An utterly horrific day in the city of brotherly love. Lynn Washington was born in Pittsburgh, but studied journalism at Temple University in Philadelphia, where he now teaches as a professor of journalism. He's also worked for the Philadelphia Tribune and reported from several other parts of the world. He's provided news analysis for organizations like CNN and the BBC. The MOVE organization, by the way, exists today. It is a black liberation group founded by a man who called himself John Africa. People in MOVE live communally and work for animal rights, among other causes. You'll hear more about MOVE from Lynn Washington. He was one of the first to report on the group going back to 1975. When I first started uh, as a reporter, MOVE was a part of a larger story. And that larger story dealt with systemic discrimination and also police brutality. Uh, police brutality was just totally out of control uh, in the 1970s in Philadelphia, in part because we had a police chief named Frank Rizzo. He, he went from police chief to mayor, and he openly encouraged, supported, and aided and abetted abuse of policing. And I use those words, aided and abetted, specifically because in 1979, the federal government sued the city of Philadelphia, Mayor Rizzo and 22 other top elected officials in city government, as well as in the police department. And they charged them with actively aiding and abetting police brutality. That was the first such lawsuit ever filed against any city in the United States. Have any other cities been sued by the federal government? Well, they've been sued by the federal government, but not in that same way where it is uh, where the charge was that the that one police brutality was totally out of control and volatile of every constitutional right and, and human decency that we're supposed to have in America. But compounding that in a very active way was the support, almost blind support of the uh, city administration. So that's the different part. Yes, there have been uh, lawsuits against cities. Yes, there have been consent decrees. Uh, many consent decrees were in place uh, in our current president, uh, as you know, shortly after him taking office, uh, he just backed out of all of the consent decrees that were uh, formulated to try to mitigate this very bad problem that we've had in the United States for decades. Mm -hmm. And what has given more credibility 
to the longstanding claims of abuse of policing is the new technology. Everybody now has a cell phone. And on a cell phone, you can either take video and or photographs. So what people are complaining about for years and officials have been dismissing for years, now there's unequivocal evidence. And the, the number of these videos that come out day after day after day uh, also undercuts the uh, claim that, oh, well, you, you didn't turn it on until the police did one little thing for a second and you didn't turn it off when they came and gave help to somebody when in fact they're turning their backs on them and leaving them to die in the street. Mm -hmm. So technology has, has helped advance the issue of uh, abuse of policing in the United States. Yeah, in fact, there was video of the brutal beating of Delbert Africa uh, broadcast eventually back in 1978 that occurred in Philadelphia, and I want to get to that in a second. Going back to the mid-70s then, in 1978, I know you covered the shooting that occurred at the compound where Move was yes. living at that time. I wonder if you could sort of uh, set the stage leading up to that and um, help us understand how how that changed things my understanding was that initially move was a fairly peaceful organization at their outset was that your impression as well, well when they yes they were peaceful in that they weren't attacking anyone as such but they were very dogmatic in the expressions of their beliefs so they would go and protest and in many times their protests were like sieges and you know, rightly or wrongly, they felt that they had all of the right answers and you were gonna listen to them whether you wanted to or not. Um, so they, would, they protested against um, Jane Fonda, they protested against uh, Dick Gregory. Their first formal protest was at the Philadelphia Zoo against the caging of animals. And these protests, some because of their dogma and their just uh, insistence uh, but also within the context of the brutal policing in Philadelphia always led to clashes. Uh, in 1950, and I, I, I apologize for sounding like a professor, but you know I, I do that sometimes. <laughs> but in, in 1952, uh, there was a University of Pennsylvania Law Review article, and in that they were looking at problems with the Philadelphia Police Department. And one of the things that they said that anybody that challenged a police officer's order, like, well, why are you doing that? I mean, not to the point of getting up in their face and all of that, but just saying, hey, why are you bothering me? That was an open invitation to get beat up and falsely charged and incarcerated. In 1973, there was a federal court ruling. It was a consolidation of a series of lawsuits that had been filed against the Philadelphia Police Department for brutality coming out of the late 60s. Those were from black people. Those were from uh, uh, interracial correlations. They were from the Young Lords, which was the uh, Puerto Rican equivalent of, of the Black Panther Party. And in that ruling in 1973, the judge said that those who challenge uh, their initial encounter with police are those most likely to get beat up. So there was a history of abusive contacts between MOVE and the city of Philadelphia, really from the onset of their first demonstration in 1972. So let me flash forward through a few things. Uh, some of these encounters were very brutal. There was an encounter in March of 1976 where a, a moved baby was allegedly trampled on by a police officer um, and that uh, heightened Move's defensiveness. Move then started turning that compound in 
um, Powhatan Village into a fortress. They built a stockade fence around it. They put a platform behind it. There was a series of other incidents. And then in May of 1977, MOVE came out on its platform with arms saying, we are not going to take this anymore. Now, MOVE said that the guns had no firing pins in them and no, and no ammunition. Of course, you have a right to bear arms and you have a right to bear arms on your property. And that May 77 uh, incident created a standoff. The police said, if you come off the platform, you'll be arrested. Well, MOVE said, well, if you want to arrest us, come in and get us. The police said, well, no, we're not going to come in and get you, but you can't come off. That went from May of 77 into the beginning of the year of 1978. I think it was around March of 78, late February, March of 78. Mayor Rizzo says, okay, if they're not coming out, I'm going to starve them out. So he sealed off the whole eastern portion of uh, Powhatan Village. Residents who lived there had to have passes like they were in South Africa to get in and out of their houses. That starvation blockade where Rizzo stopped all food going in, shut off all of the utilities, water, electricity, gas. I think that lasted for about 54 days. There was a settlement move was um, supposed to vacate the premises at some point. That led to uh, August 8th of 1978 where Rizzo decided that he was gonna go in and evict move members from their house. There was a um, gun battle. A police officer was killed. Uh, and as you said, during that gun battle, during the surrendering portion, the then face of MOVE, because uh, John Africa at that point had gone underground and left the city, was Delbert Africa. And when Delbert was surrendering, um, all he had on was a pair of jeans. He was uh, naked from the waist up. He had his hands uh, outstretched to show that he was not uh, armed and four policemen brutally beat him. And as you noted, it was recorded both by television uh, news camera, as well as uh, some uh, photographs from, you know, photojournalists for newspapers that was broadcast around the world. Nine MOVE members were convicted for the death of the police officer, although evidence indicates he was killed by friendly fire. They received 30 to 100 year sentences and MOVE's efforts to get them released laid the groundwork for uh, what happened on May 13th, 1985. We'll continue with Lynn Washington in a moment. I thought it might be instructive to hear some audio of former Philadelphia mayor and police commissioner Frank Rizzo, the one and only Frank Rizzo, in this snippet recorded in 1980, just after Rizzo's second and final term as mayor. You'll hear KYW TV reporter Stan Borman attempt to interview Rizzo near his home. You were the symbol of law and order in Philadelphia, sir, for many years. People looked get up to you and respected me. you. Look, creep, get out of here. How could you justify your actions at our cameras last Monday creep, in front of your get house? Out. You're a creep. We're a member of the media. We'd you're like a, to have an answer to our question. You're a creep. Why did you attack our cameras? Sir? Get it all. Don't miss any of it. You're a creep. Get away from me. Would you answer the question? You know, you hide behind that press card. I'm not hiding Give behind me. anything, sir. Well, I just you, wanted I'll to get some answers. I'll tell you what to do. There's a gang of you here. There's enough of you here. By myself, I'll take you physically. Well, I'm not asking I'll you go, to take me physically. Well, get away from me. Well, sir, I'm on the if public street. I should, be, I should be authorized to be here. Then. I'll break it over your head. I'll break it over your head. Get away from me, you crumb. Leading up to May 13, 1985, 
there was extraordinary tension on Osage Avenue. Move members uh, actually moved into the house of one of uh, John Africa's sisters, a woman named Louise James. She had pretty much been the spokesperson for the organization. And Move had a strategy to what they felt would win release for their nine imprisoned members and five others, so that would have been 14. And that strategy was for them to put pressure on their neighbors. The neighbors in turn to try to get relief would go to public officials, put pressure on them and to give elected officials to give relief to the neighbors, they would release move members. So I knew that the tension uh, was growing uh, and when we got down literally to a, a week or so before May 13, 1985, uh, the neighbors were so frustrated and, and flabbergasted by the refusal of city and state and federal government to take any action. They threatened to get rid of MOVE. They said, well, we're, we're armed. Some of us have military training. We'll get rid of them. Then they also asked for assistance from the governor of Pennsylvania, a Republican, a guy named Dick Thornburg, who was, you know, like Rizzo Light. And Mayor Good was a Democrat, so it became that partisan issue. And then we're at uh, May 13th, 1985. I'm sleeping. I get a call at three in the morning, very cryptic. Lynn, yeah, get over here. It's going down. Click. Get over where, what's going down. I knew exactly what he was talking about in terms of where and who. I knew it was going to be the move house, and I knew it was going to be moved. I had no, no idea, not even my wildest imagination or intuition informed me at any level that this would be one of the most bizarre days of my life. Uh, that phone call came in from somebody that you, you knew, I presume. Well, um, I don't know who because he never identified who. I have a kind of an idea from just remembering voices, but it was somebody that was a MOVE supporter. So it came from the MOVE side. It didn't come from the Daily News. They didn't inform me. I went over there and then I informed the Daily News because I was working with the Philadelphia Daily News at the time. I, then I informed my editors that I'm there. And I was actually there for 22 hours. Wow. I was there when there was a morning gun battle. I don't want to say it was a shootout because it was really a shoot in. You had about 150 police officers, heavily armed, assault rifles, submachine guns. They actually had M60 machine guns, a 50 caliber machine gun. They bought an anti-tank gun, but they didn't use it. Uh, then they, you know, they had the pistols and um, silencer equipped sharpshooter rifles. And that gun battle went on for 90 minutes. They ran out of bullets. They had to go up to, when I say they, I mean the police. They had to go up to the uh, police training ground, get more bullets. And uh, subsequent investigations found that the, that the police fired 10,000 rounds of ammunition during that 90-minute period. Also during that period, uh, without getting too deep in the weeds, there were police SWAT teams on either side of Moose House. They were trying to uh, effectuate something to get them out. They felt that they were being shot at by Move when it was actually friendly fire. They had explosive charges with them. They threw explosive charges into the move house, blew the whole front of the house off, as well as heavily damaged three houses on either side. There was a, a law during uh, much of the day. In the afternoon, the police commissioner, um, Greg Sambor, decided that he was going to construct a bomb uh, or have a bomb constructed and drop the bomb on the house. As it turned out, 
late that afternoon, my editors at the Daily News assigned me to monitor the uh, city's command post, which was blocks away from Osage Avenue. I'm there. The managing director sees me, said, you know, has a police officer say, get this guy out of here. I went across the street and where did I sit to review my notes? Right in front of a, or in a parking lot, right in front of a state police helicopter. Mm -hmm. And while I'm flipping through my notes, three guys come out. One of them has a submachine gun. They all have nine millimeter guns on their hips. One guy was carrying a satchel charge. A reporter friend of mine told me that the city was going to bomb move. And I just dismissed it. Now, this reporter I knew had impeccable sources within police and the city administration, but I just could not believe that the city would do this, even though I knew that the Philadelphia police were notorious for their brutality. So the guys got in the helicopter, shooed me out of the parking lot. I watched the helicopter fly, make a, a loop around Osage Avenue, and then there was a big explosion. Because, you know, where I'm at, you know, I can't actually see, you know, you, we now see the iconic photo of the helicopter and the satchel charge coming out. I didn't see that. I just saw the helicopter and then there was this tremendous explosion. It buckled my knees blocks away. Then you walk down and you see that this explosive device, this entry device, they would never call it a bomb. A bomb is something definitionally that uh, is an explosive. And if you drop the explosive from the air, it's an aerial bomb. Mm -hmm. Come on. <laughs> but they can, these euphemistic, phrases, oh, it's an entry device. Uh, so anyway, that bomb had started a fire. And the fire initially looked like uh, you're starting a barbecue grill in your backyard, a little, you know, black smoke. And then having been a you know, reporter for so many years on the you know, police and fire beat, I knew how fire went. When you had the little black smoke, then when you start getting the thick, voluminous yellow smoke, you know it's burning through building material. And then when you get that gray black smoke, it's a major fire. So we were standing there watching this fire. And we were also watching that the firefighters weren't fighting the fire. And that became a whole ruckus. People were cursing at the, at the firefighters. They're shrugging their shoulders. What none of us knew at the time is that the police commissioner had given an order for the firefighters not to fight the fire because he wanted to use the fire as a tactical weapon to drive move out of their houses. Move members did come out. Move members, as well as evidence that uh, investigators later found that police officers shot at move members and drove them back into the house. To this day, the police deny that they ever did that, but there was compelling, almost irrefutable forensic evidence that police shot at the, at the move members. And I'm saying some of this uh, evidence was police buckshot inside the bones of a few of the children and a few of the adults that they recovered after the fire. Now, if they weren't outside of the house, then how did they get police buckshot inside them? Buckshot would not penetrate a wall. If it was a rifle bullet, yes, but buckshot would have not gotten through the wall, so they were out. Another clip for you, local Philadelphia TV reporter Harvey Clark of WCAU is reporting live from the scene that day when a gun battle broke out. The police presence here is not like it was the last uh, time. This is being handled almost entirely by the stakeout unit. There may have just been a gunshot. The gunshots are starting right now. 
It sounds uh, automatic fire, Steve. There's quite a bit of it. We can't tell, Steve, at this point exactly where the gunfire is coming from. It feels hard to be Steve. Okay, Steve, at this point, uh, we're being forced to leave our position. Uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Okay, police are now moving Harvey Clark and Charles. Lynn, I, I want to ask you, I'm just wondering what's going through your head uh, as all this is unfolding. I mean, you got there early, early in the morning, right? I mean, you got that call at three o'clock in the morning. Yes. So you got to the scene at about what time? Uh, probably about 4.30. 4.30 a.m. Because I jumped on my motorcycle, 4.30 a.m. I jumped on my motorcycle, exceeded the speed limit to get over because I, I was living on the other side of town. And uh, I thought that a motorcycle would be better because it would um, help me move around. I could park in a densely parked area without any problems where a car would have done it. So you're saying, what kind of emotions were, were going yeah. through my head? Well, it, it was a raft of emotions, Rob, um, from just anger to you know frustration, disappointment, and just a overall numbness of, you know, I hate to characterize it this way, but WTF. What is going on here? I just don't believe this. And that went from the time that I got there at around 4.30 a.m. to the time that I left around 2 a.m. the following morning. Let's remember that I, I just told you about that, that morning gunfire and 10,000 bullets. I'm walking down the street, you know, hearing the gunfire in the background, again, going through all these crazy things in my head. And I started hearing stuff falling on the sidewalk. I said, wow, this is hell. This is unusual. I look up, the sky is clear blue. It's cloudless. What is bouncing off the sidewalk? And then, you know, as you're going through that thought, within a split second, it's like, oh, shucks, these are bullets. So fortunately, I was near my motorcycle. I pulled the helmet off, put it on my head, and tried to Ouija myself under a car to protect myself from these bullets falling. Later in the afternoon and early evening, you know, you're watching the fire. You can't believe it. Later that night, um, I, he I heard people in the, in the crowd that had gathered. At this point, it's like really surreal and carnival-like. There's people milling around. I mean, hundreds of people milling around watching this fire. And I heard that there were people who were trapped in their homes. So I said, well, let me go see. There may be a story here. So I got around there. And yes, people were trying to help folks get out. And it became a dilemma for me ethically because reporters are not supposed to get involved in a story, but it became a, a question to me, do I stand here and watch people burn to death or do I get involved in trying to help? Well, I opted for the latter and I ended up wading into literally a cannon of flame, I mean, a canyon of flames. It was so hot, Rob, that my skin was, was boiling. These houses are literally being burned to the ground there were people running in the houses trying to loot them. And some homeowners had gotten back into their houses and they were standing in the burning doorways with guns to keep people from looting the houses that were burning down around them. And two people pointed guns at my head saying, get out of here. I got my press card up and it's like, we don't care, expletive deleted about your press card. And I'm like, I'm gone. And I didn't turn my back on them either. I walked backwards. Can you imagine this walking backwards in this canyon of flames. But I didn't want to turn my back on those people because right. I didn't want to get shot. Wow. It's incredible <laughs> yeah. that people um, were so desperate at that time that they would loot by going into burning buildings. I mean, that tells yeah. you something right there. Yeah, it, it, that, was that was just extraordinary. But it was just one of so many extraordinary events that day. Earlier in the day, 
and this is something that was never reported in the, in, in the papers. I, I gave it to the Daily News. Uh, for whatever reason, it didn't make it to the paper. And I could understand that because um, you had scores of reporters out there feeding information. Something's going to get lost. So that something was all of the stuff that I reported that day. None of it got in the paper. Where my frustration came in is that after that day, when supposedly more calm prevailed, I tried to get this information in and the Daily News didn't take it. What was this information? Well, there was an effort to resolve it. After the morning gun battle, the top lieutenant, longtime friend of John Africa himself, and John Africa himself was in 6221. He died in there. But it was incinerated along with the other uh, 10 persons in, in that house. 11 were, were incinerated. Uh, Jerry Africa was trying to get in touch with Mayor Good. Now, I ran into Jerry Africa um, with, he was with two other people. He was with a West Philadelphia community activist, and he was with a guy who was a former judge in Philadelphia, Robert Williams. Robert Williams not only was a former judge, but he was then the Democratic Party's candidate, official candidate for district attorney of Philadelphia. So, you know, we're just not talking about some scruffy move members and their supporters. These people had check. Uh, we walked up and down trying to find a phone because this is the pre-cell phone days, right? So all the pay phones were broken. They're knocking on people's door. Can I come in your house? Who are you? Oh, a move member? No, you can't come in. Uh, nobody's home. Well, I'm just talking to you. Nobody's home. <laughs> so a woman finally let him in the house. Uh, Judge Williams was on the phone for a half an hour trying to get in touch with Wilson Good. Wilson Good would not get on the phone. At one point, uh, Judge Williams called the Chief Justice of Pennsylvania Supreme Court, who in turn called Wilson's office, and Wilson wouldn't even get on the phone to the Chief Justice of the um, uh, state of Pennsylvania. Understand that Wilson Good was living 10 minutes away, mm -hmm. and he would not come there to try to take control of this. Now, Jerry Africa's stance was this. He was authorized by the people in 6221 Osage Avenue to negotiate with the city. What was the negotiation? All Move wanted was a formal written promise that the convictions from 1978 would be reviewed. They dropped their demand for immediate release of all 14 members saying, just give us a promise that you will impartially look at what happened in 78 and Wilson Good wouldn't do it. And as we know, 61 homes were destroyed, 250 people were left homeless, 11 people were killed in that fire, including five children. Only two people escaped. One, an adult move member, uh, Ramona Africa, who still has ugly scars all over her body behind this. And a young child, his uh, name was, uh, in move it was called Birdie Africa, after he got out and was reunited with his father because his mother was a move member who perished that day. Uh, he became uh, Michael uh, Ward, Michael Moses Ward. Right. Yeah. Who sadly just died a, a year or two ago, I believe. Right? Yeah, yeah. A year or two ago. Yeah. So let me ask you something. You mentioned that the, the, the bomb was dropped. Uh, mm -hmm. It was what late afternoon or, or somewhere around. Yeah. There? According to the timeline, the bomb was released from the helicopter at 527 PM. It exploded because they had a 45-second delay on it, so that would have been 528. 
by 5.30, the fire was gone. Because not only, uh, well, they dropped the bomb on the roof of a house containing children that they knew was in there. But they also knew that there was a five-gallon can of gasoline on the roof. And so when the bomb dropped, and the way the bomb was constructed, the materials that they used, military-grade C4 that they got from the FBI. FBI gave them C4. And then they used a mining explosive that is used to do trenches. So when the bomb blew up, it was over um, 5,000 degrees. It ignited the gasoline, and then everything just went up. And then the unconscionable decision to not fight the fire. Right. When the bomb dropped, you mentioned you were over at the at the police command place post, a, a block yes. away. Mm-hmm. Then did you eventually move from there with more of a view of the of the building? Well, yeah. Well, once it was clear that uh, I couldn't station myself in front of the command center, and once the bomb dropped, I knew that the story wasn't at the command center. It was back down on Osage right. Avenue. So I, you know, ran back down there. I'm it was a lot a lot younger than I am now, so I could run. I can't even think about right. running two blocks. Uh, yeah, same here. So it was uh, it was about five thirty, and yeah. l- like you had said, there was a decision to let this fire burn as opposed to putting yes. it out. Even though the fire department was was on scene and they had been spraying water into the building hours earlier, trying to flush people out that way, so they could have started to try to put that fire out, but they made a conscious decision with the mayor's approval to let that fire burn at that point? Well, that's a point of decision. The police commissioner says, yes, I got it approved by the mayor because I asked the managing director and he was in charge, I think, with getting in touch with Good. Good said he never approved the bombing because nobody ever told him. Leo Brooks says, uh, I don't know. I was just standing around drinking coffee. I'm being a little facetious now, but everybody was pointing fingers at everybody else. Uh, but we do know, at the very least, that the police commissioner said, build the bomb, put shrapnel in it so we could get those quote unquote MFers. And he didn't say MFer, he used the phrase. And then it was him to say, don't fight the fire. We're going to use it as a tactical weapon. The fire commissioner says, yes, okay, well, we'll, we won't fight the fire. And they didn't begin to fight the fire in a conventional way from the ground until 9.30, four hours after they dropped the bomb. Now, you did say that they had been spraying water from these uh, high-rise hoses. It was just a comedy of errors and atrocities all day long. By the time they started turning those squirt guns on, after the fire was blazing, the water pressure in the neighborhood dropped and the, and, and the squirts became ineffective. Now, how that happened, it was never adequately determined, but they couldn't use those squirt guns to mitigate the fire. And you could just see the flames jumping from one house to another. Then you saw them jumping across the street And as I said, Rob, it was just so surreal watching all of this happening and again, trying to make sense out of it and contextualize it. And it was just mind boggling. It was absolutely mind boggling. So how do you maintain balance in a situation like that where you know you need to get a story or really it's like a set of stories as you are experiencing these emotions? What is that like to try to stay in balance in that to be a professional Um, at the same time? 
it's kind of schizophrenic. On the one hand, you're going through all of these things, but on the other hand, you have a job to do and you do what you can to do, do that job. And, and, you know, you try to push everything out because I knew I had to talk to people. I knew I had to record, uh, record this, not in a sense of um, audio recording or video recording. Uh, but I, you know, I just tried to, to, to do the job the best that I could. Uh, but still, you know, having these raft of emotions and it was almost it was almost like being on the ocean, you know, where you have the waves go up and then you know the peaks and troughs. You know, one moment, oh, great, I'm doing a job. And it's like, this is crazy. I can't believe that this is going on. You know, sh- should I start yelling and hollering at the police also? No, you're a reporter. You can't. You have to stay back. No, you got to get the job done. You know, you, and you hear somebody saying something, you know, it's a lie. You want to say it to their face. You're a liar. And you want to, you know, yell at them and, you know, yell some expletives, but then you have to maintain a professional uh, demeanor. So it was just seesawing all day long. I can't help but wonder what was going through the mind of the mayor of Philadelphia, Wilson Good. Did you ever get to talk to him? I know there were press conferences and obviously he's spoken publicly about this many times and apologized. Mm -hmm. Did you ever get to ask him questions like that yourself? Like what was going through your mind when all this was going on? I know he didn't intend to burn 61 homes, but what, right. do you, what's your sense of what he was going through in this? Well, the short answer is yes, I did get a chance to talk to him. In fact, I, as it turned out, I was the first, he gave me his first interview after he left office. And this was like decades after he left the office where he was going to talk about move. Uh, when he left office, he ultimately went into the uh, seminary and became a minister. So that event really had a profound effect on him. Mr. Good did some really bad things that day, but fundamentally, Mr. Good is a good person. And I'm not just trying to play on words or whatever. I mean, he has a good heart. And what happened that day was just overwhelming. There were things that he should have done beforehand, but he's trying to keep the peace. Uh, this was really not his problem. It should have been resolved by the, the preceding mayor, Bill Green, and Wilson Good served as Bill Green's managing director, which was like the number two man in city government. So when I asked him, he said, well, look, I'm not gonna talk too much about that day. And I'm saying, well, Mr. Mayor, that's what we're here to talk about. <laughs> Uh, but he said that it did have a profound effect on him. If I could do it again, uh, I would do it differently, which is different from what he said at a press conference on May 14th. He said, you know, I'd do the same thing again. He's surrounded by a group of uh, black ministers who said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, oh, OK, here's here's a real example of Christian compassion. He would burn up kids again and then leave two, 250 black people homeless. Mm-hmm you're not being very Christian in this kind of attitude. Mr. Good did acknowledge that the worst mistake that he made as mayor, aside from, you know, not taking control and charge in, in May 4th, uh, May 13th was to select Greg Sanborn as his police commissioner. Again, contextually in so much context, uh, gets lost in this. Wilson Good, there was a, a true effort for black political empowerment in the city. The people of Philadelphia, or at least um, the non-white people of Philadelphia, wanted a black mayor, and a lot of progressive whites wanted a black mayor. So there was that effort going on. But there was also this decades-long effort to corral police brutality. Mr. Good was faced with a heck of a choice. 
does he alienate the police union that opposed his candidacy by bringing in a candidate from the outside to be commissioner? Or does he select someone inside to be commissioner who could probably be aligned with Frank Rizzo and more importantly, Frank Rizzo's mentality? So Mr. Good tried to split the difference. He hired someone as his police commissioner, Greg Sanborn, who wasn't aligned with the Rizzo factions, but he was within the department, so was promoted from within. What Mr. Good didn't realize at the time when he selected Sanborn as the police commissioner, he thought that he was selecting a good guy because Sanborn had a master's degree and Mr. Good was really enthralled with people who had advanced degrees. And uh, Mr. Sanborn was the head of the police academy. So, well, I'm taking a college president. Well, what he didn't know was that Sanborn had been planted in the police academy because he had messed up on all the other assignments that he had. Beyond the move bombing, there were several other fumbled assignments by the Philadelphia police under Greg Sambor. Lynn Washington told me there is a great public television documentary about all of this called Let the Fire Burn. I'll have a YouTube link to the full film in the show notes. Next time, in the second part of my conversation with Lynn Washington, he draws some connections between what happened in Philadelphia in 1985 and what's happening in the streets of America today. All of the additional audio clips you heard in this episode are on YouTube and included here for educational purposes. Please subscribe to the newsletter and podcast at themedianarrative.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Hoschild. We'll take it out now with a snippet of classic Philadelphia music from the 1970s. This is the OJ's Backstabbers. What they do, they smile in your face. Stabbers.